All right. Hello, everyone, and happy Thursday. Welcome to another episode of Crypto with English. So I'd like to warmly welcome uh, a special guest today. So he is a blockchain podcaster, author, content creator, and business builder. Um, he's also somebody I've, I've uh, done a virtual conference and summit with as well. Uh, someone who I would consider a genuine subject matter expert on many facets of blockchain itself, Jamil Hassan. Thank you for uh, coming on to the show and great seeing you again. Oh, it's great seeing you. Um, yeah, we had a great we had a great conference in Dubai online, and uh, yeah. thank thank you for inviting me today to be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I wanted to uh, showcase today is your newest project. So the crypto uh, crypto hipster uh, publications and the podcast itself. Talk a little bit about that. Sure, but before we do, I want to I want to touch on one thing, um, sure. and I want to talk about the elephant in the room. And you know, um, I'm not your typical um, your typical guest. Your typical guest is a is I, I see you on here with talking to attractive young women all the time, and I'm a you know 51 year old crusty wrinkled man, and I'm like, okay, I'm not your typical you know you know if, if you and I were in a club together, I'd be your wingman 20 years ago, but you know, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's good to be here. So um, yeah, I'm working on the on the chronicles. Yeah, talk now, about what, that. Yeah, what that is is. Uh, I did 182 podcasts over the past year and a half, and I'm, you know, building up my own, my own, you know, station, my own brand. And when I, you know, a lot of the podcasts I've done, you know, a lot of the content, because I don't ask like, what do you, what's your price of your token or what's the market doing today? I ask yeah. like challenging thought leadership questions and they end up giving, I end up having universal answers that I could play 10 years from now and have it be like still meaningful. So yeah. I said, okay, I had all that, all that content. So let me put it together and put, you know, take, you know, one question from each of these podcasts for three or four people and create a topic and create a chronicles. And so far, you know, um, it's, it's gone really well. And um, I wanted to see if I could, you know, if it made sense and the subject matter, the subject matter was relevant and it is. So I'm going to roll with it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, this year, it's, it's clearly been uh, very volatile and tumultuous. As far as, you know, world events in the Web3 blockchain space, what do you think are some of the biggest pain points, you know, on, on the road ahead? Well, um, I'm working on my next book now. And it is, okay. I, haven't, I don't have the title yet defined totally, but... I interviewed from the period of the end last week in February to uh, the first week in May. I interviewed 13 people from the Ukraine. Um, some were, you know, uh, people who were under the rubble at the time. Uh, another was a man who built the front, built shelters on the front lines. And I also interviewed the uh, the minister, deputy minister of financial transformation. And what I learned, what you know, and talk about pain points, you know, war is a pain point. Um, what I learned was, you know, Ukraine is a very advanced, one of the most advanced nations in the world as far as the use of crypto, NFTs, and digital transformation, um, and how they were doing it and how that applies and could be used by the rest of the world. So there are lessons there. So that's that's the pain point. First pain point is war. Um, so I'm working on that now. And, and um, you know, the AI algorithms translating the translating, you know, English from you and I are pretty good. But when you have heavy accents, 
it's a lot of work to go through all the words. <laughs> so that's what's making me a little bit take longer than, than expected, but um, I'm going to get there. And then, you know, um, all the, you know, all the, all the stuff that's happened since June, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in crypto since June and web three. Um, you had, you know, bankruptcies, you had contagion, you had yeah. to navigate through that, you know, um, it's not just technology you got to navigate. It's the personal and interpersonal uh, skills like resilience and trusting yourself and all that stuff that's in mental health. That's all, you know, come into play now. Right. And uh, what about Bitcoin itself? So, you know, obviously that's taken a few, uh, you know, a, a few blows to the face, you know, if we're to use boxing terminology, you know, maybe, maybe ate a few haymakers this year, <laughs> so to say. So, uh, you know, what, what are your feelings on, you know, the road ahead for, you know, Bitcoin itself and perhaps even potential successors in, in the near future? I think we, we can all, I think we can all uh, agree that, you know, Bitcoin is probably among the best of, you could say, you know, DeFi and, and tokens, but even that, has it's you know huge uh i guess you could say huge uh frequencies of, of volatility on any mm -hmm. given day well i wasn't around in 2013 for for the crypto industry but i was in 2017 and i was an advisor in the ico space one of the few u.s yeah. people who were um yeah. and in 2018 when crypto winter hit um i finished the year with two heart attacks but along the way oh wow yeah yeah that's okay i'm better um along the way i lost like everything i lost my mountain bike i had for 25 years i lost my jet season tickets i lost my business and that was winter and what people don't really know is the crypto winters the crypto bear markets can be especially brutal you know right. and that's what you're seeing now but you're seeing it more widespread because more people are in it you know if you don't draw the comparisons it's really the same it's a bear market it's a winter and you know you're going to have loss um so by by the end of 2018 um bitcoin was three thousand dollars and um i you know was focused on recovering from my heart attack so i wasn't working i wanted to buy then i couldn't um but i said it'll rebound and it did it came back to six it came up at 60 you know yeah. um the the blockchain ain't going nowhere it's not it's not going right. anywhere the, the people uh who are bitcoiners will capitulate you know but the bitcoin blockchain unbreakable unhackable uh, you can hack exchanges you can hack wallets but you can't really it's kind of like easter island those standards are going to be there bitcoin is going to be there it ain't going nowhere you know um people say you know people claim it's death in my last book blockchain ethics um Fighting honorable battles. I, I talk about the 450 times it's been pronounced dead in the media. It's right. not dead. It's not dead. You know, right. so it's going to last. It's going to be there. And when we start looking at it in terms of how do we use it to solve, you know, environmental problems? How do we use it to make breakthroughs in math? Um, when we start looking at it that way, kind of like people started looking at in, in Italy, started looking at, at Jesus um, in 1100, you know, A.D., Instead of zero AD, you're going to look back later on. We might not be here, but our future generations are going to look back and say, okay, this is what's possible. This is what we they, they didn't learn. This is what we are learning. It's here to stay. Right. So I, I guess using the context of, uh, you know, um, biblical history and let's say the New Testament, would this be a biblical moment for technology, generally speaking? 
you know, when they were when they were building the printing press, they didn't realize it was a moment. You know, when they were when they were in Kitty Hawk, they didn't realize it was a moment. Right. Um. You know, you look back a hundred years, like, oh, that was the moment. You know, uh, very very few inventions come along that are universal. You know, and right. that last. So I think we're early in the stage of that technology being able to last. And um, in order to, to really defeat it, you're going to need breakthroughs in quantum. And we're not there right. yet. Right. So. And, um, and just to uh, expand on that, you mean quantum computing. And yeah. uh, kind of, uh, I think right now we're really in the very early stages, more or less, on that front before, mm-hmm. I, I guess, any type of tangible uh, use on either, you know, my end or most people's end would be. That's right. That's right. You know, um, I was, uh, you know, I was on Amazon and I was uh, checking out your books earlier, and um, you know, you had this uh, one publication out that I thought was very interesting. So, uh, blockchain ethics: a bridge to abundance. Can you explain what ethics are in this space? Because I think uh, a lot of the focus tends to be on a lot of the great potential, and rightfully so, of of this, you know, overall umbrella of technology. But seldom you hear the conversation about ethics itself. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was the first ethics uh, writer in this space. And for that, I was called a scammer. <laughs> you know, And the people who are the scammers were called ethical. So it's backwards. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote that book. I published it in March 2018. It was my first book. I wrote it with a friend of mine from college uh, who helped me out. Um, and uh, what happened was I had a publisher and her husband was the ICO advisor. Um, and I gave her money to, you know, to help market the book and she wasn't doing it. And she oh. called me a month later and she was like, you know, I ended up self-publishing because she was like, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to market you. You're going to come up the hard way. And I'm like, what's the hard way? Well, I've learned what the hard way is, um, you know, and I decided yeah. this past year to write two more ethics books. Um, what's <laughs> ethics? I can tell you the ethics is not the actions of the SEC. Uh, right now, um, you know, and uh, I'm not going to name names, but I'm like, you know what? Um, when you don't do a certain job that you're required to do, and then you do, and then you try to hurt the crypto industry, that's not ethical. But um, a year and a half after I wrote that book, MIT, you know, uh, said for the first time ever, we're having a conference. It's called, we're combining two words, it's called blockchain and ethics. <laughs> no acknowledgement of my work. You know, and I'm like, that's right. that's not that's not ethical. Ethical is acknowledging people who are who are here, right. saying this is what they, what they did or what they're doing, and then okay, can we talk to that? Um, right. I'm going to keep on interviewing people for my podcast and books and all that stuff um, because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, and if people you know don't want to read or don't want to listen, they don't have to. But right. I'm going to keep uncovering the truth and uncovering the truth. That's ethical, right? And I'm curious too. For I guess you could say detractors that accuse what you were doing um, as being a scam. What would they actually say? Because I'm thinking to myself, if if somebody is putting out a publication on ethics, that is probably among the least scam-like subject matters you can p- kind of put forward as far as. Uh, you know, a product or a service out because I would think if somebody's putting forward something that is akin to a scam, it's like buy, you know, buy this service in blockchain, buy this token, you know, in in, in blockchain, you know, buy these services on this platform in blockchain because it seems like 
scams more or less kind of come from almost the same two or three places a lot of times, at least as far as the bad examples we've seen in this space. So somebody putting out a book on ethics, that is probably among the more academic pursuits one can do in this space. <laughs> you got to discredit. You got to discredit the ethics guy. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> like to. I said, I am just curious how like the 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 argument was from, you know, the other person Zen, like, oh, Jamil, you know, this is kind of scammy. Like, what are you trying to sell people here? Like, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm horrible in sales. If I were great in sales, I'd have a whole bunch of money right now. But once it'd be sitting from my house, I have an office. Um, yeah, I got to learn how to do sales. Um, so, but, um, you know, my pursuit is basically, you know, have as many people who don't understand crypto get to understand it, you know, right. and, um, the other day, you know, I was doing these Facebook precision marketing and they halted me. They stopped me on that. Uh, so I tried to get it out there cause you know, they had me, like I asked for an audience in the UK and yeah. they sent me to middle America. And the UK is responsive and receptive to crypto. And a lot of people in middle America are not yet. So you should see the, should have seen the responses I got back. I won't air. I won't talk to you about them on the air. <laughs> but right. they're, well, not, they're not friendly. <laughs> so, right. you know. That's, uh, you know, and that's interesting. And, you know, of course, you don't have to, you know, um, you know, recite the specifics of those. But you found that, let's say, audiences in the UK are quite open to the conversation and I guess you could say the self-learning journey of blockchain and I guess pitching that same type of idea and subject matter to let's say a different audience and let's say if it's Indiana for instance far less receptive um, far less far less interesting and I'm in and I'm in I'm in you know I'm not too far from you. I'm, in, I'm in Connecticut right? right you're in Connecticut so I mean you're probably an hour not even drive from me right but yep. I'm in the middle of all the bankers, right? And all the, and all the <laughs> That's <hedge> right. <laughs> they don't want me to be successful. I understand, you know. Right. But I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because you know, in your yard, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and if you're out, if I'm the little termite in your yard, I'm still going to be the termite in your yard. It's <laughs> so. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and don't underestimate even the uh, the <laughs> potential of just one termite for uh, especially the summer. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, since you are in, you know, you know, Connecticut and, you know, and, and I think uh, for people up here in the Northeast, uh, you know, there is a tremendous amount of uh, wealth influence in many of um, uh, institutional bankers. And you could say uh, a lot of the, uh, the faces of those institutions live in uh, various, uh, actually probably a handful of uh, areas in Connecticut that are quite well known, you know, up here as well. Is Connecticut, is there like a blockchain culture there so to say because i when i think of connecticut you know being a guy you know being a guy from new jersey just right outside new york city you know my um my business is, is in new york city but when i think of connecticut i think of old money a lot of people tend to up when it comes to the northeast especially you think of old money and i think a lot of times when you think of maybe new money it's like hit or miss i think when it comes to new york you you, you know if somebody has a great business and it does well great but you also have you know the, the, you know, the Morgan Stanleys and the, you know, Goldman Sachs of the world too. But I think Connecticut almost gets this kind of universal old money association with it. Not to say that it's entirely true, but that is kind of like a prevailing perception. So I'm kind of wondering, as a blockchain guy, as a blockchain thought leader in this space, would I imagine that there's a fair amount of pushback 
in some of those circles. Let's say if you're going into some old money town in Connecticut, you start talking about blockchain and some of the potential and even some of the successes with crypto tokens. Are people, or maybe some of those crowds, are they kind of clutching their pearls and they're thinking, okay, I don't want this to erode my bottom line and the portfolio I have elsewhere. Oh, yeah. You know, you have you have Jamie Dimon here. You have Ray Dalio here. You have right. all the old money here. You have, right. you know, um, people who have who want to win, but, you know, they want to win on their terms. And a, a lot of, of times course. my terms are very different <laughs> than what their terms are. Um, right. You know, I recently passed an exam to be a certified digital asset advisor. And again, I congratulations think. on that. Thank you. I, I feel I'm qualified to help people understand this space and then you know there are a lot of soft skills as well you got to understand one of them is resilience one of them is patience you know one right. of them tolerance all kinds of different things to learn and it seems like everywhere and every day you turn there's you know fear uncertainty doubt placed in the media by the traditional players you right. know and how do you navigate that and i've been navigating it for three years and sometimes i still get it wrong you know, um, how do you know when, you know, what's going to make an impact? Like there are certain influencers within crypto who, you know, made an impact against certain exchanges in crypto, you right. know, um, and I, I, I made a mistake. I didn't think they had any credibility and I was wrong. They had a lot of credibility with their audiences and there was an impact. Right. Um, so, you know, how do you how do you steer and navigate all that and also understand like what you said earlier, DeFi? You know, because DeFi is very different than me going down to a to a, a bank or a hedge fund and putting my money with them. You know, it's self-custody. It's self, you know, and a lot of people are still, you know, financially illiterate, unfortunately. You know, right. how, do you, how do you train that? So, yeah. And, you know, and kind of going to some of the things you touched on earlier, Ukraine, for instance. And I think Ukraine is not unique when it comes to this one aspect, but a lot of times when there is some sort of natural, um, I'm sorry, national crisis or catastrophe, banks are among the first things to shut down. And, um, you know, I, I think we can look at the, uh, the course of, of modern history and, and even pull out even more examples from that. But one of the successes was because of these various blockchain and uh, crypto projects that emerged you know, since February of this year with the invasion of Ukraine, people were able to send money to people, to Ukrainians in the middle of that crisis, where if they're not able to withdraw their money from the banks, there were all of these tech projects where people can get money over. I found it very, very promising and very, very mm -hmm. uplifting, in, in fact, that, uh, you know, these are kind of the readily available solutions that we have. And these are coming from startups these are coming from entrepreneurs these are coming from very very ambitious passionate teams who who've effectively put together things in a relatively short amount of time and provided a real tangible solution you know so to say if you're to let's say if you're to wait for and i'm not going to point out any names here but if you're to wait for a larger institution per se to do the same thing I mean, listen, those moments, those days, I mean, th th those are easily, you know, um, that's easily the line between life and death, especially, you know, in a wartime situation. Well, yeah, um, there's, they did two main things. Uh, well, th three, but two main things. One is they worked with PayPal to, uh, you know, the government did 
to yeah. uh, enable, you know, financial transactions for the people who were leaving, going to Poland or Ireland or the UK, they had access to the financial infrastructure. Um, that was huge from a government perspective. From an artist's perspective, you know, all these NFT projects, you know, were created and people were able to purchase NFTs, right. you know, Art for Ukraine, White Rabbit did something, a, a bunch, um, and uh, empowered, really empowered the artists to help fund the military. Um, and then three, um, exchanges like, you know, like FTX, like other exchanges, Binance, right. um, made donations and you were able to track and see where the donations went, where in the past, you know, you might have you might have donated to an organization and not known where the money went. Now you can, you know, with blockchain, you can see exactly where it goes. And a lot of it went to the funding, the government and the military. So they opened up a really transparent way of showing where the money in a nation went. And it did it, it really created an economy and a smartphone. Yeah. I have a question. I've heard this comment about blockchain uh, made either by, uh, I guess, a different speaker. This person was either a, uh, a comedian, but also a subject matter expert in the space. But blockchain and cryptocurrency is where altruism and personal interest meet. So it's where, so it's very easy for many people, once they know about it, to really get into it and really participate and really become parts of the ecosystem. What are your thoughts on that? One of the chronicles I put out today was on altruism. It was part of the conversations with was with Franz Strajnar, uh, who uh, founder of Techemy in New Zealand. But I've had other conversations like with um, you know David Schwartz, who's the founder, you know director of Litecoin Foundation. That when when uh, Charlie Lee founded the Litecoin, he did it altruistically. Um, a friend of mine, Chrissy Smith, in the space, she you know bought a lot of ENS domains and is setting up a shop for you know for donations altruistically. Um, a lot of people think crypto is just about money, and it's not. You know uh, the the there's th really three elements. One is you know long term try to you know, investment. One is you know short term or whatever retirement, and the other one is the revolution. The revolution is all about altruism. You know, it's about, you know, doing the right thing, you know, trying to carry the message, you know, being part of um, the economy. Because, you know, my other book, my, my major book that I wrote a couple of years ago was Regeneration X. And it showed how, you know, the current leadership generation that's in charge or in charge or government and corporate, right. you know, um, when they took over, you know, a lot of people were thrown onto the sidelines. And it wasn't about altruism. It was about, you know, control and taking over, you know, for, for themselves. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people were out of work, you know, millions. And, right. um, you know, I was one of them. Uh, still unable to get back to a job. I will someday, you know. Um, but, you know, why am I in crypto? It's not just to make money. It's because I feel I have an opportunity. And now, especially with DAOs and other ways to do it is to have an opportunity to build a career, build a life, build a legacy and not be beholden to, you know, the way things were by the, by an old structure that's antiquated. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of, um, speaking of structures, um, you touched on regulation, you know, earlier today, and you also spoke the fact that, you know, really a lot of the bad stuff won't be coming from the regulators. And I think that's a good clarification to, to make, I do feel at some point there is going to be a regula regulatory structure 
that I think we're all going to have to interact with in the in the future. So say, and I think that structure is still you know uh, being defined at the moment. Uh, I guess depending on which country, but for the most part, it is still being defined. What are your thoughts as far as how regulation is going to look for, let's say, me, you, uh, you know, and even you know, kind of the the rest of us um, in the years to come? We have a lot of lawyers in the U.S., so it probably the U.S. isn't isn't right. the best isn't the best thing to look at when you're talking about regulation. I've had regulation conversations with people in like from like 35 different countries. Yeah, and um, what I what I notice is Switzerland is doing a really great job. You know, as far as setting the setting the bar, you know, Can you talk um, about that the, the the Swiss model of uh, of doing things here. You know, I don't know the specifics in general, but I'm telling you that that they have the backing of the entities and the people, and they're okay. doing and they're looking to to build you know something that works for everybody, you know, not just something that works for the banks. You know, right. they they're looking to work with you know people and and you know not just comply with like the European rules, but like what's what's forward thinking as far as what's going to build you know companies, what's going to help entrepreneurs, what's going to help VCs, what's going to help everybody, you know, win, and what's going to make Switzerland the leader in the world. And you know, I know uh, they're looking at regulation in in Dubai to do the same kind of thing, right? Um, in Hong Kong. Um, and you know, they're, they're looking, they're looking forward and saying, okay, how does everybody win? And in order to, you know, have a, you know, that conversation, you know, um, the lawyers all have to get on the same page because if they, if they look at it that way, then they're going to lose revenue. <laughs> so you right. have to get by that, you know, that pushback. But once yeah. you get past, past the pushback, then there are a lot of things that need to be looked at because, you know, there was a, and I put this in my Regeneration X book. There was a guy who wrote, um, and his name is escaping me, in 1906, The Law of Automobiles. And he looked at the, you know, every single way and every single, you know, path that people drive and what everything is, you know, and what, why you drive and, and what are the rules and standards around it. Right. Um, I think we need to do the same thing. Um, but I haven't seen, like, different areas get together and say, Hey, this is how we collaborate. Right. I think that needs to happen. Very well said. And, you know, I was, I was checking out one of your other books uh, earlier today too. Uh, you know, blockchain ethics, you know, arise, you know, from the ashes. Talk about that one, you know, a little bit as well, because uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I think the potential of blockchain technology is immense and I think we're already seeing it, but um one thing we can't lose sight of would be ethics and how one can be ethical in this space. Because I think if there's no clear roadmap to that, um, you know, the industry is going to shoot itself in the foot. So, yeah, if you can, you know, expand and, and talk about that publication. Sure. That was uh, my, that was like that. Could, I could actually re name that, you know, uh, Crypto Hipsters Chronicles because it was an episode. Um, oh, and okay. that was that was an interview. My four full interviews I had with J.D. Salbago, with um, with uh, Michael Dowling um, and with Sarah um, and with Jillian Godsell. And that was there. That was the very beginning of the NFTs, like before the before the board apes came out. You know, right. We, we were only really the crypto punks were there. Um, and we we're talking about how they came about and, and Sarah, he had been a graffiti artist, you know, for not just this year, he'd been a graffiti artist for 30 years, you know, and he had a lot, he had a lot of haters, you know, and people who didn't want his, him to continue to do his art, 
but he's yeah. been the inspiration for art like in Philadelphia and New York and all over. And um, he said, you know what? Um, you just stay in the game. You stay there. You keep having to keep doing the art. You keep building. You keep having the conversations. And I think one of the things about ethics is we have to keep having the conversations of what's the right way to do business and how should companies and how should people incorporate crypto into their lives and do it in a way that they're not afraid that their money is gone the next day. Right. Um, you know, and how do you do that the right way? And so right now there's a lot of gray area and, but we need to continue to define the gray because um, it's never going to be black and white. Right. Um, but we have to learn how to live in the gray and build together in that gray. Yeah. And, you know, I think much of the world and much of our, you know, day-to-day experience, you know, operates, uh, you know, in the gray as well. And um, I think that's a very good, good point. Like, do you think that as a, let's say as a society or as, you know, participants in this, you know, web three era, so to say, should we like, uh, either derive or, you know, somehow implement various ideas, let's say, you know, democratic ideals, let's say even coming from, even coming from things like the the constitution and the Magna Carta, like things like that, like things that kind of provide a, a framework. And I know those, both of those examples are a little bit more on the, uh, the, the ancient side, you know, so to say, but some of these, um, principles of, you know, transparency and fairness, um, they're, absolutely necessary no matter what era in history you're in or whatever type of space you're in you know as you know as well like i guess you know like i said so do you think something concrete as far as like an ethical code needs to you know arise from this you know so to say so people can kind of think like oh okay that's that should kind of be my baseline when i interact with either entities or or people in this ecosystem I think I think I think what should arise from the ashes is a better way to deal with each other. You know, huh, it's yeah. not it shouldn't it shouldn't be left versus right. And if you're not on one side, you're wrong. Right. You know, it has to be OK. You and I disagree, you know, and we disagree pretty, pretty strongly on, you know, what's the middle ground? Yeah. You know, how can we create something in the middle that might not be completely acceptable or 100 percent? in favor of you or not even a hundred percent in favor of me, but how do you, when I collaborate, I had, I didn't see that collaboration under Trump. Uh, he's probably right. the, one of the most bashed people in the media second to Bitcoin. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see that. I see, okay, you're right. Or I'm right. You're wrong. Ain't going to work. You know? Right. And I understand why that happens in the media because you got to sell You got, you got to have viewers. Right. Right. But having that viewers in the media um, kind of is very counterproductive to actually having those cooperations and collaborations in, in real life. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question. So do you think the media um, perhaps uh, should be allocated maybe some of the some of the blame or some of the culpability, you know, in a lot of this? Because I think, um, you know, I think what I've come across in terms of many people is that web three and blockchain is not this binary politicized space. This is generally speaking, a space of very free thinking, very open-minded people. So, you know, so to say, so you don't essentially run into this kind of dichotomy uh, as maybe you would elsewhere, you know, so to say, I can't, I could even say in my own anecdotal experience, I've never really encountered at 
at least in any meaningful way, people who are of this mind of, you know, of true black and white thinking, you know, of true either, you know, um, it's either this or that and nothing else. I, you don't really see so much of that in this space. And I definitely would not say that is the majority of people. Actually, I would say the majority is quite the opposite, the open-minded, real, real free-thinking group of people. But yeah, but back to the original question, um, does the media have culpability in, let's say, maybe uh, contaminating, let's say, other areas, let's say if it's industry or, you know, society? And many people say Trump is a creation of the, of the media over the, over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years as well. I mean, listen, maybe one could say if, the, if, this, if these were the uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy years, somebody like Trump wouldn't have a shot. People would not take somebody seriously like that in, you know, in another time. I think social media has a huge impact. Um, I also think that, that, uh, you know, Dodd Frank had a huge impact. <laughs> so, you know, Absolutely. Um, you had people and, and still haven't dealt with it. The only industry that was not, not impacted at all by COVID was the appointment of um, the board of directors in corporate America that went smoothly without a hitch. And if you look, <laughs> which point. I did, um, at the people's backgrounds in the proxy statements versus what their actual background was. I took the time to do that. You'll yeah. see a lot of embellishment. And, you know, so you have people who are at the top who may not necessarily belong at the top telling me and you what and how to think. Yeah. Um, that doesn't work for me. And I don't fall for that, you know, so, um, you know, and I don't play that way. So, you know, do they? Yeah. Do you have unqualified people at the top because they know somebody? Yeah. Do you have, you know, is there an opportunity someday to change that? I think you change it through the Dow. Um, you know, you change it through through blockchain technology, through emerging technologies. Um, is there something that needs to be done? Yeah. Um, but I would definitely question who it is that's telling you what to think and how to think it and then say, you know what? That doesn't go with my beliefs and who I am. And so I'm not going to listen to them. That's a job, and, and a lot of people don't necessarily, you know, want to take the time to do that. But I say you gotta, right? Yeah, abs, you know, abs, absolutely. And that is a very uh, interesting point you raised, especially uh, during the course of pandemic. The I guess you could say the thing that did not slow down was you could say the appointment of these various, you know, you know, executives onto you know various boards and and whatnot. And I think that is particularly. Uh, telling of either, you know, things now and perhaps things, uh, you know, things to come, you know, to, uh, you know, it's, and it's, it's, it's a little, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's a little, uh, it's a little unfortunate that that's the part that seemed to be uh, running like a well-oiled machine, unlike, uh, you know, unlike, uh, you know, other aspects. So, and, you know, moving forward from that, you know, um, your book, Regeneration X, can you talk about what was the inspiration in, uh, in, in drafting that? How was that process? And, you know, what made you, uh, I guess, what guided your uh, trajectory in making that publication? It was probably one of the main, most painful processes of my life. <laughs> so um, in 2017, I was laid off in 2017. I was at AIG for a total of 12 years. And um, the company had to downsize like any, like most other Fortune 1000 companies. And right. what I know, what I, and what I noticed, and I, I survived 10 rounds of layoffs and I didn't survive round 11. Um, but what I noticed then was in 2017, you had a whole bunch of people who had no data experience in their life walk into corporate America and say, hey, data's new. And 
yeah, get C-suite jobs. And I built databases, data warehouses, data departments, all that stuff for 20 years. Yeah, I didn't get one interview in 40,000 applications. And I said, okay, you know what? Something's wrong here. Uh, yeah. So I said, why not write a book about it? Because I, because I, at AIG, I helped build the C-Car platform, which helped the company comply with Dodd-Frank. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was like the expert in that. And so I wrote a, I wrote a book on it and um, I chose the wrong publisher. You know, I chose, I, I didn't do my due diligence and I chose a publisher who was a felon. Um, and so $16,000, <laughs> you know, uh, and I learned don't ever pay a publisher. Uh, self-publish if you have to. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, every week for the uh, half a year, they came back with major edits. You know, I thought I was done. I kept thinking I was done. And yeah. they kept, they, they kept you know, pushing it back to make sure I never got done. But I got done oh, right. I see, you, I see what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got done right after the contract terms had expired. So, okay, I don't got to use this guy anymore. So then I published right after that. And then they were trying to do a um, try to tell me that I couldn't publish, but that said, look at the contract. And then I got a right. letter. And anyway, um, going through that process of being denied every week, like I learned how to be a researcher. I learned how to pub. I learned the in depth and intricacies of the crypto industry and the technology. So it was beneficial. Yeah. Um, I refuse to look at myself as a victim because I had a choice and I have a choice always going forward. Right. So, um, I know we live in a nation of victims, but you know, I can either I can choose which way I want to see myself, and that is a as an author to get my 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 word out. So I did. Um, I didn't sell too many copies, but the fact is, in 2010, when they wrote Dodd Frank, there was a generation that didn't have a seat at the table, and that was Generation X, and we weren't part of that of that law that was created in mind. The law was created for by boomer generation and in mind, the millennials and younger generations, but not mine. So we didn't have that voice. And I said, let me have a voice here. Um, it's going mostly quelled, but some people bought it. And I keep talking about, you know, there's something we can do better. And that's why I talk about the collaboration, because there wasn't collaboration then. And there can be now and there should be. Right. You know, and speaking of, um, you know, speaking of baby boomers as well in that generation. So I, I think it is, um, I, I think it is abundantly perceived that I think a lot of the decision makers in, in the United States are of more of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the baby boomer generation. <clears throat> Why did the shit hit the fan, so to say? Because it seems like this after World War II, um, you know, I think, you know, the United States experienced a vast period of prosperity and this was around the time the baby boomers were born and these were the time when they were growing up went to school started careers and so on and so forth why did they drop the ball let's say for gen x and you know let's say generations you know to come because that is a sentiment that is commonly echoed and you know perhaps rightfully so you know you're essentially given this great megastructure from the greatest generation, let's say, you know, the World War II generation, you know, uh, you know, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were defeated, time to, you know, rebuild, so to say. And, and that effectively was done. Wasn't perfect, still problems, but you had this period where upward mobility and stability, you know, economic stability was nearly, I wouldn't say perfect, but it was 
it was very, very powerful. And I think very much so there was enough of a social contract where people really believed and, and rightfully so I do work hard. I can get a house, you know, I can build assets. I can start building generational wealth. I can have a stable job, so to say. Where did that cliff come from between, I guess you could say, the time baby boomers started, let's say, you know, you know, uh, they created their careers, entered government, entered big industry. How did that cliff come about? How did they build that cliff, so to say? Let's say if we were to put the blame on that generation. And by the way, like I said, a lot of people do. Um, how did that, How did they build that cliff where it seems like they got to enjoy that part of the show, but nobody else did? <laughs> The, uh, there was a generation between the greatest generation and the boomer generation called the silent generation. Okay. And the silent generation were builders. They were really skilled, talented people. And, you know, as you got law, you know, and the early boomers were very skilled and, and talented too. Yeah. And as you, as you go along the age line, the tail end of the boomers, they are nowhere near as a, as a collective, as a cohort, nowhere near as talented as the early boomers. Um, now, now why? Um, there's a trend. There was a transition between the analog and the digital, you know, so you have a lot of, you know, younger millennials and older Gen Z who are very digitally savvy, you know, um, the boomers are not digitally savvy and, but the, the younger millennials, you know, and, and Z's are, are not analog savvy. They think they know everything there is to know about everything there is to know about everything there is to know. Yeah. And they do not, not even close, you know? Um, so, you know, they don't know the business. You know, and right. and along the line, that transition was not addressed, you know, and with Gen X is that gen that is that transition. But we were told when we were young that we were going to be the first generation to not have it as good as anyone else ever did. So we retreated in the family life. We were laid off and replaced by younger workers uh, without the knowledge of business. And we're all still like half of us are more are on the sidelines. We were impacted by COVID and all right. that stuff, you know. So you have a big drop off in the middle where the talent, the real talent, you know, in this country, like for people who can bridge the analog and the digital, are are like me, still on the sidelines, you know, um, having to start from scratch to build our business or be a, a stay at home family, or you know, that's where the talent is. Um, so we need to be able to capture that talent, step out of family life, but you know. Family life is kind of comfortable, right? So how do you how do you step out of family life, go back to business when you've already been, you know, thrown out? You know, how do you how do you do that? Um, we have a way to a go, you know, to step back up, and then okay, you know what? It's our turn now, you know, right. um, because like I said, with the with the boomers, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of we were out, you know, we're outnumbered, uh, you know, and okay, they keep showing up, you know, um, and you know they mean well. But being able to have somebody who can bridge that analog digital and understand the old and then build the new into the old or the old with the new together, you know, that is a conversation between Generation X. And we were already, you know, crypto is all about community. And Gen X is not about is right now is not all about community. We're all about family life. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's right. just the way it is. Right. And that's uh. That's quite interesting. And, you know, I, I think technically I am at the beginning of the millennial. So I was born in 1985, so I'm 37. So I think that's technically the beginning of millennials. But uh, 
Um, you know, I think even with, within that, um, I guess even with that, within that age demographic or generation demographic, I think there's still kind of a divide because TikTok came way after, way after me anyway. Oh, but yeah. um, it is interesting because I will even say growing up, um, that was also the line that was kind of recycled and kind of thrown around a little, maybe perhaps a little bit too casually. You know, your generation is not going to have it good as our generation, so to say. So we might have been either the second or third generation to kind of receive that. And the funny thing was there was kind of a casual, like um, almost a, there was a casual attitude towards it, which looking back on it, I don't think is right because parents would say it all the time. And by the way, teachers would too, mind you. Yeah. Like, teachers, like, you know, you guys are not going to have it as easy as we did. And everyone just kind of just shrugs their shoulders, like kind of taking it half seriously. But I'll tell you this, you know, we certainly had no idea the gravity of how that was going to play out, you know, 10, 20 years after, you know, let's say <laughs> going through K to 12 and then actually experience kind of the last, let's say 15 years of world and economic events. Uh, how, yeah. Uh, yeah, how, uh, how steep that cliff was. Pretty steep. And then yeah. it's and then and, and then it's not just the you know the job perspective that that steep cloud you know I mean I can go into this for days with you I mean you know addiction you know all kinds of sure. you know personal like mental illness like, all that is a direct impact of it you know so sure you you got to include that in the conversation and not just say oh this person's wrong why are they wrong <laughs> you know right uh, and, and you got to uncover those conversations and have them yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, um, you know, one of the things that seemed to have led to greater destabilization was I think the gradual or maybe some would say rapid move from a manufacturing economy to a financial services one. Now, I know this is kind of like older macro microeconomics, but I will say objectively, it seemed like things were more stable when I think this was a manufacturing economy when we did have Detroit as like the auto, you know, manufacturer of, of the world. It seemed like you had the suburbs and home ownership pop up everywhere. And then it seems like maybe from the late seventies onwards, that's, we, I guess you could say that was the tangible move towards tangible move away towards traditional, you know, manufacturing. And I guess towards really the, you could say the, the infrastructure that we have now well i mentioned the silent generation right right so, i was actually wanted to go back to that yeah so um we built they built an entire economy on one invention the air conditioner you know everything all manufacturing was built upon refrigerator air conditioner freon you name it you know movement of transportation of agriculture everything right. was built on the air conditioner it was the one invention that was able to make us a leader in 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 economy that's interesting and we have we have something similar today that exists called bitcoin you know well, how can we use bitcoin to Bitcoin mining to become a world leader, not in coal, but in, you know, different environmentally friendly ways to create energy. We have that, it exists, and we're not using it the way that it should be used. 
like other countries like El Salvador have attached it to a volcano. You know, uh, Tonga and Fiji are attaching it to a volcano. Um, you know, Dubai is going to be a leader. And, and, and you know, oh, yeah. A lot of and, great and, things coming out of the UAE. Oh, yeah. And okay, so how do we in the U.S. leverage this beautiful piece of technology? Not the not the maximalists or the people who are you know pushing right. Bitcoin on everybody, right. but the actual invention. How do we leverage this invention to be like the air conditioner, so that the U.S. can become a a world leader in every area again? You know, and we should be looking at it that way. Um, so you know, so I look at it as far as the invention, as far as advancements in math, in security, in all that stuff, you know, which, yeah. you know, is, is it, if the silent generation were to here today, they'd do it, <laughs> you know, so why not? Yeah. Why can't we? Yeah. And that's a, you know, that's a very good point. And, you know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, there are many uh, areas, many groups around the world that are making this very productive use of, let's say, Bitcoin and crypto, uh, you know, people essentially attaching their <laughs> mining operations to solar panels, you know, for instance, volcanoes, as you've mentioned, you know, powering those processes, you know, th you know through that. Um, I certainly feel that we have to see a lot more of that. And I think people will both out of necessity. And I think probably out, out of inspir uh, out of inspiration as, as, as well. So, you know, I think you raised some excellent points. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your new podcast. I will have to say, you, you definitely had some great guests on there, uh, you know, lately as well. In fact, I think uh, one or two of the guests have also been on my show as well. So if you could, uh, yeah, if you could talk about it, that'd be great. Sure. When I, from the period of time from March 2021 till June 2022, I interviewed 182 podcasts and 182 guests from like 40 different countries. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got one heck of an education, um, but also got the education in, okay, um, what I want to do with it, you know, and um, I was doing, I was putting everything up on the Irish Tech News and I had conversations with different coaches that said, you need to really take your material and have your own show. Yeah. I said, okay, well, I don't have any agreements with them. So I'm going to leave the, the podcast up on the Irish Tech News. I love the Irish people. Anybody can can listen to it in Ireland and and uh, still can. Um, and But let me create my own. So I, I have created the Crypto Hipsters Chronicles yeah. um, right now, which is, you know, I take four or three or five people I've interviewed and I find a common theme and a common topic. And then yeah. I get there. I've taken the part of the interview and I get their views on that topic, you know. When I do my podcasts, um, I don't just ask you, okay, what's the current token price? What's the market value? To, like, I don't want my podcast to last a day. Like, right. I want to be able to look back 10 years and say, okay. So I do thought leadership podcasts. And that's, you know, really drawing out the thought leadership from my guests, like you're yeah. kind of doing right now with me. Thank you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it's, I ask artists, you know, who are right brained, left brain questions, like analyze this or, left brain, right. you know, technologist to ask, to ask some creative questions and kind of makes your brain think in a different way. But yeah. then it draws out the, the thought leadership that you don't get the opportunity to explain to the world, to, um, you know, originally. So I bring that out and then, okay, that's the stuff that lasts universally. Um, yeah. So I take those universal comments and the key, the key insights and I put them together and I publish it as the crypto hipster podcast, crypto hipster podcast. And, you know, a lot of people say, hey, you're not a hipster. I'm like, well, I'm 51. I'm an old man. I'm a hipster. You know, I used to ride my bikes and pop a wheelie and 
you knew where my friends and I were because our bikes were on each other's front lawns. You knew where we were. I'm a hipster. <laughs> good, good stuff. And, um, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the crypto hipster, you know, podcast, what do you have coming up? You know, let's say next week and the week after uh, what guests, uh, what subject matter do you have kind of coming up? So, you know, all of, uh, all of my viewers can perhaps, uh, go ahead and check it out when, uh, the episodes come up. I haven't interviewed anybody new since the first week in June. So, um, and I plan on interviewing new people in September, you know, awesome. uh, truth, truth is, um, I'm a, during the summertime, I'm a stay at home dad, you know, with, with my kids. And, you know, if you ask any parent, kids are not easy during the summer. No, <laughs> so, I have a five-year-old, trust me. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. And he, endless amounts of energy. I, and I just have one. So <laughs> I can okay. only imagine, you know, two, three, four kids. Like I got two. Yeah. That's yeah. enough. Um, yeah. but you know, once September comes and things are back to the normal, then absolutely. I'm going to be reaching out to the different, um, you know, projects and PR firms and companies uh, around the world, you know, and inviting them to be on my show. And if anybody's listening to this or watching this and they want to become one, just let me know, you know, um, so then we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up from there. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to be finishing my Ukraine book. Awesome. And, you know, speaking of Ukraine, how do you feel that this, uh, war this uh international catastrophe is going to play out of, over the next let's say six months in the next two years and you know you know beyond that there's a lot of uh a lot of things happening now um especially with petroleum nord stream you know matter in, in europe um the various you could say military and military strategic campaigns going on from the uh russian military point and there's also a fair amount of you could say um, either, you know, misinformation or inaccuracies being thrown about, you know, in the media as far as what exactly is going on. Like some people have echoed um, what really is going on with the war in Ukraine right now. Um, is progress being made or is it certain that, that the uh, Russian military is going to take over? Like, um, you know, being that, being that you're making your next book on this, what's your, what's your feeling on this? Like uh, where, where, does, uh, where does your compass point to? On this my compass points to what's possible with digital transformation you know um what's possible for countries that are war torn to build you know using smart technologies you know that's that's the main crux of my book as far as you know i mean russia has a lot of military they have a lot of missiles they have a lot of a lot you know they have they they are really you know have a lot of stockpiles so right you know you can't get through that but you know um our our media in the U.S. when the war started said, "Oh, this is new. Oh, Putin's a madman. Um, it's they attacked him out of nowhere. This war had been, you know, really, really ramping up since 2014. Really, yeah. actually, since the Soviet U Union dissolved back in 1992. You know, and there are a lot of people in Russia, like a lot of people who are Trump supporters." You know, um, say, you know, the U.S. can be great again like it was in the 80s or the Soviet Union can be great again like it was in the 80s. And, you know, um, that's a that's a mindset of like, OK, it's not as good now as it was or, you know, it could be like it was and, and it's never going to be like it was. Um, so how do you get beyond that? Because there's a lot of similarities between the people, you know, here in the U.S. and the people in Russia and the Ukraine who were in the you know 40s and 50s and 60s of things being better than they were you know before 
And you, how do you, you know, you have to do a lot of conversations and have, have the discussions, but how can we make it so that everybody wins? You know, I don't see it right now. Um, I just see a lot of blame, but you know, I do see the silver lining and that is how do we use, you know, technologies, digital technologies to help smaller nations become powerhouses like El Salvador will, you know, Ukraine will, um, and some of the other nations, you know, that, that are building kind of like Ukraine are, you know, like small countries like Pakistan or, or whatever the people could be able to, you know, um, overcome the, the government and, um, you know, so that's the silver lining. Um, so hopefully things play out and work out well, but I, you know, I don't want to see like a whole entire economy shelled, you know, when it's just, you know, we can have conversations first to, to try to, you know, figure things out. So that's just me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and speaking, you know, speaking on that as well, do you think you made the comparison, you know, when it comes to like, let's say Trump's supporters, <clears throat> excuse me, Trump supporters in the United States, they want to make America great again. And I think uh, this is probably an allusion to the probably the post World War Two, you know, um, economic growth here, which is, I, I think, also greatly distorted um, as far as what's being promoted. Because I think anybody who's grown up in the Northeast, um, I will say this uh, unabashedly, Donald Trump was almost like a cartoon character growing up. I, I will say I will say that. So if you're from up here, um, many of us, I think almost regardless of political affiliation, it was a little surprising when he became a candidate. <laughs> and uh, kind of the narrative that was, um, you know, uh, I guess you could say parroted. I will say this. Um, I could not... and. I think the Northeast, whether it's my neck of the woods or yours, I think people are generally down the middle for the most part. In my like everyday experience, most people are kind of down the middle. I could not, I could not think of any, let's say, traditional Republicans that I knew that would have voted for him back then or now, because that is, you know, that like people that I knew, so to say. This is anecdotally speaking. Um, he, he would have never been taken seriously. Um, you know, in, in a different time, in a different type of, you could say, structure of, of society. So, um, but, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we can probably get into that, too. But, you know, going forward from that, you know, as let's say Trump has made the illusion to making America great again with this very type of um, customized, you could say, distorted type of marketing for this. And then the, let's say Vladimir Putin and the Russian government, for instance, they want to achieve some sort of like um, historical greatness again. Do you think that historical greatness was more from either Soviet Union or was that or is the greatness he's thinking of more like imperial Russia? So, you know, late 1800s and before, you know, so to say with, you know, with their monarchy and their, let's say, armies carving out places in Asia and Eastern Europe, like what do you think would be on their mind as far as what is what is their representation of Russian greatness? Is it the recent, let's say, Soviet Union or is it the imperial, you could say, you know, the, the imperial um, superstructure that they maybe had, you know, before then? Wow. Um, I am not a history expert on what Russia was like before Lenin and Stalin. I, I don't know. Um, I would think that one of the parts of a great nation is that you provide opportunities for everybody and not just half the people, Yeah, you know? 
Um, and you know, alienating half of half the people. I mean, it's it's horrible for a country. It's great for crypto, right? You know, because you know every crypto is backed by a community that supports it. So you want to sure. splinter everybody, and you know it's wonderful for the for the, every single crypto community, but it's completely awful for everybody who's not in it. You know, right. um, so how, what do you go back to? I don't think you can go back to anything, but I think you can build for the future, and you got to do it collaboratively. Um, yeah. So. You know, part of being great is having wonderful relationships with all. I mean, not not every single country, but you know, there are some that start going to be rogue, right? You know, but but you know, how do you how do you build in a society and economy that is truly global and who can collaborate together? We're not there yet, man. I, you and I probably don't see it, you know. Um, but hope so. Hopefully, someday it'll happen. Yeah, and you know, this is my final question. This kind of goes along what you're saying. Do you think? For societies now to achieve some level of greatness, whether it's, let's say, an idea of what future greatness is, or even, let's say, um, deriving some sort of past greatness, is blockchain going to have to be a requirement, you know, in that, you know, in that trajectory, so to say, if you want to make a great society and, you know, one that has, you know, prosperity, upward mobility, but also equity and inclusion, you want people to participate in this you want people to want to you know participate in this i think people just want to know they have a fair shot or at least as fair as at least close to fair as possible you know in the in the real world is blockchain going to have to be a requirement of that because it seems like this legacy systems are not going to get get us there if we're if we're to look at what's been going on they're not going to get people society as a whole to that, you know, whether it's me being, you know, kind of on the older side of millennials or you being a Gen X, I cannot see business as usual getting us there in, in any shape or form. I can go by the numbers. I can just go by what I even pick up in the newspaper. It's not going to be the path forward in any in any way, shape or form. So let's look. If you take away Google, Amazon, Microsoft, all the top performing companies what's left people don't care you know um you know the company there there are a lot of companies out there that are middle of the road companies that are good solid companies you know like a harley davidson or like a heinz ketchup or something like that and people just don't care you know they care about the big you know buy from amazon or buy or search from google or whatever and you know um so there there's comes a time where you know you got to look past the, the convenience I think convenience and automations hurt where, okay, this is what, this is what entrepreneurship is. Let's help entrepreneurs. Let's create new innovative ways. And one of the ways to create innovation has to be blocked. It doesn't necessarily have to be blockchain. It could be other decentralized distributed ledgers. You know, there are are other technologies, but there has to be, Inclusion and involvement in technology in every single level of society. And I'll tell you right now, there's not, you know, people yeah. can buy a crypto, make some money. But as far as mom and pop shops, as far as blue collar, as far like I have a lot of blue collar, ask me all people I know, friends ask me all the time, what's crypto? Like there has to be a knowledge base that come that filters down or filters up or filters sideways, <laughs> you know, filters right. somewhere that has to be permeable and has to penetrate society. You know, and then people have to use it. And if you're not using it and you're not building something on it, then you have to be able to have the support infrastructure that supports the companies that do. 
and you know then yeah. people will care so um you know those growth companies create a product create a service that uses blockchain you not necessarily use bitcoin uh, or right. ethereum but the or the two the 12,000 other cryptocurrencies use something you know and then help have people help you and learn and collaborate that is very very well said and you know i think touching on the fact that this this technology needs to be part of the normal like everyday discourse of you know people's life you know small businesses and, and shopkeepers i i feel that ultimately that is where the success is going to be once you have you know that that population you know really the the practical everyday you know experience uh people in the everyday economy once you have that type of knowledge and application that is where the real success is going to be and i think the unfortunate thing is that is also part of the economy that is hurting the most you know right now i mean even with the i guess one could even say even with the way covid-19 was handled and you kind of almost saw a massacre in many ways of small businesses you know across the us it kind of makes you wonder uh who is benefiting from that windfall you know so to say you you saw this almost I was going to say mass exodus, but that's even putting too nice of a tip on it, so to say. It, it, mm-hmm. You know, it, it was almost, uh, you know, it was definitely a lot, you know, a lot worse than that. Um, I have to say, Jamil, this was a, a great episode today. And I want to thank you for, for coming on. You provided a lot of great insights, you know, through your scholarship in this space, you know, through uh, your experience on your podcast, especially doing that many episodes. Like, uh, that, that's incredible, uh, having that many guests and having that many, you know, perspectives. And, you know, and also, you know, bringing your, you know, your, your vast amount of, um, you know, you know, experience from, you know, from Wall Street and, you know, big finance, uh, you know, onto the show as well. These are the perspectives. These are the lenses that that make a lot of this less foggy and, you know, more more visible over time. So, you know, I'm very much looking forward to, you know, checking out your uh, your, your next release, your next publication. Uh, keep me posted on that. Um, you know, I'll be sure to go on Amazon and, you know, get myself a get myself a copy as well. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, September when you, uh, you know, have uh, when you bring back on the podcast. Uh, you'll definitely... receive, you'll be receiving an invite. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> please, please let me know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let me know what works for you. I'd love to love to come on and, you know, pick up from here and uh, <laughs> see where, uh, see where the rabbit hole leads. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you, Jamil. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a great Take care. You too. Bye.